Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Skybound Capital's podcast series, Under the Macroscope, where we take a look at various macro issues affecting global economies and, in some cases, how we make investment decisions. And joining me on the podcast today is Skybound Capital's Chief Investment Officer, Theodore Shu, who is usually based in the Hong Kong office of the business, but at the moment is in Shanghai. And we thought it was uh, an opportune time uh, to tap the expertise, the brain, the knowledge uh, of our chief investment officer on certain matters to do with China. And uh, we thought in a slightly lighthearted way, uh, we could play a little game of myth busters because there are a lot of things that circulate in the news about the way China is operating at a macro level. And we thought no better person than uh, he with his feet on the ground to, to either agree with uh, some of these rumors or statements about China and their operations, or indeed to bust the myth, so to speak. So Theo, great to have you on the podcast again. And uh, we've just come to the end of the Winter Olympic Games in Beijing. And something that caught my eye as a big uh, sports fan was uh, more and more Chinese sportswear. So one of the things that we hear often is that uh, Chinese manufacturers are simply knocking off bigger name brands and uh, producing them at much cheaper prices. Tell us about this. Are these Chinese sportswear brands that we're seeing more and more of simply Nike and Adidas copycats? Uh, thank you very much, Matt. I'm happy to be here. And uh, the quick answer is they were. They certainly were for a long period. Um, but you're right. Take the opening ceremony of the Winter Olympics, for example. The usual suspects like Nike and Adidas were se seldom seen at all. Most of the national teams were wearing branded gowns and sportswear. And what's interesting is that many of them are Chinese branded. So those Chinese brands, uh, take uh, the, the leading brands, for example, Anta, Li Ning, they were rooted from the eight, late 80s, early 90s. So they're not necessarily much younger than Nike. However, for a very long period, you're absolutely right that even the largest Chinese uh, sportswear brands were trying to copycat the international leaders. However, this is no longer the case in recent years. And that's why they are more and more recognized by uh, global sports people. Um, who are choosing them to, to be wearing them as well. And a lot of these Chinese brands are spending tremendous amount of money into R&D. Therefore, nowadays, uh, their uh, shoes could actually be more techy than some of the leading global brands. Their sportswear are also, uh, in, in many ways, more sophisticated than their competitors. Um, even in terms of price points, in the past, when we talk about knockoffs, they're supposed to be cheap. But that's no longer the case with uh, many of these uh, Chinese sportswear. Uh, on many occasions, they are actually priced more expensively than Nike or Adidas. So that myth was a fact uh, for a long period, but it no longer is. We're going to jump around to a lot of topics today, Theo, for obvious reasons. And uh, we would encourage 
uh, our listeners and our subscribers to the podcast to, to get involved. If you pick up on something that Theo is talking about that you like some more information about, please do get in touch. Uh, we're putting email addresses and, and links to the Skybound Capital website throughout uh, the course of these podcasts. And we really would encourage you to get in touch, ask some questions. We do like uh, the interactive nature of these things. So Theo from Sportswear, I want to go in a completely different direction to property. Uh, we hear stories of literal ghost towns in, in China. Uh, cities, by any modern standard, uh, standing mm. empty, unoccupied, and uh, the thought that a property bubble bursting is inevitable in China. And, and we spoke on a previous podcast in 2021 about Evergrande uh, and uh, the falling of that giant, so to speak. Where are we at in terms of the property market and, and the Chinese ghost towns? Sure, I'd love to talk about the Chinese ghost towns because in the past 10 years or even longer than 10 years, we've seen analysts chanting about those uh, um, ghost towns and singing the, the songs of uh, China going to an end or Chinese properties going to an end. Though none of those have really materialized into the doomsday for Chinese properties as yet, at least. Um, those uh, ghost towns definitely were existing, so those are not, not a myth. But what's important is that you need to compare the value of those ghost towns to the value of uh, the more valuable assets in China, the, the more valuable properties in China. Let's jump out of the residential market for, for a second and compare the office space. Shanghai is where I am in now, is a small city with roughly 30 million people. Um, it is um, small in terms of its uh, proportion of population as opposed to the entire population of China, right? That's only less than 2% or sorry, 2.5% of the Chinese population. But the office market value or the office property value of Shanghai alone is almost 15 to 20% of all offices in China. And this is well justified because Shanghai is the business standard and things in Shanghai are generally more expensive anyway. And the same logic applies to residential properties too. Yes, you will be seeing a lot of ghost towns in many, rural, in many parts of rural China, but those properties are of much less value compared to, let's say, one simple residential complex in Beijing, Shenzhen, or Shanghai in the top tier cities. Therefore, I think investors shouldn't be worrying too much about the so-called ghost towns, even though those are visible. You, you can literally see them, and they're, they're showing all, all types of videos. But back to the question on, on the property market in China in general, I think it was a good deleveraging process that we were seeing in the past two years. Yes, uh, we are seeing the fall of Evergrande together with many of the uh, private-owned uh, developers. And that, that trend will continue for a while, for probably the next year or two. But still, we do not believe Chinese properties are going to zero. And uh, we still see tremendous investment opportunities in the market too. Well, I suppose very closely linked to property is population growth. And perhaps you can 
cast some light for us on uh, the child policy. There was a long-standing one-child policy uh, in China. There's been a shift away from that. What is that? What effect is that having uh, on future population growth in China? Are you seeing, uh, with the lifting of that policy, a, a, a tangible change? Uh, we were hopefully seeing so for a very short period back in 2015 and 2016. So when the one-child policy was first removed, um, the birth rate in China literally picked up quite tremendously uh, over a period of one or two years. However, that trend has been reversed again. So it is still now downwarding. Um, birth rates are coming down every single year. Back to our property analysis, I suppose that this definitely is a more disappointing or a negative for the long-term residential properties. I don't think Chinese population is going to decrease very quickly to a much smaller number, but uh, we are most likely seeing uh, an inflection point this year where the total population of China actually will peak this year. Starting from next year, we're seeing less and less people in China. But that doesn't really defy uh, the, the analysis that we had that uh, China will still see opportunity in the property market. It's not necessarily only in residential. We are seeing many opportunities across other, prop other types of properties. And even in residential, we see a lot of upgrades. Busted. Yeah, let's move on to, to the corporate world. I, I want to bring uh, two issues together again, which are sort of commonly communicated uh, issues in, in, in the media that certainly that we consume uh, around US listed Chinese companies, uh, so called massaging their financials. Uh, this is a claim that's made, it's uh, an accusation that's been made. And, and in parallel with that, uh, the US uh, running a, a so-called entity list onto which we are seeing more and more Chinese companies being added uh, and being blacklisted uh, because of possible military ties. Can, can you explore some of that? I know it's a very broad topic and difficult to summarize in, in a couple of minutes, but sure. if, if you could. Uh, totally. I mean, uh, it can be quickly summarized into two different aspects. One is really on the financials. You're right that we're seeing some um, scandals centered around Chinese companies listed in the U.S. or um, normally what we call them um, financial shenanigans. And honestly, those are not confined to Chinese companies only. Um, you, you can see um, companies cook their books everywhere. Um, they come to the, the spotlight more, I think, because one, uh, the intensifying China-US relationship to uh, also the fact that many Chinese companies are much bigger than some of the other scandals that you see elsewhere. Uh, therefore, when they explode, they create more a market impact and they, they get more attention naturally. Um, but I don't think it is uh, the intention of the state to push uh, dodgy companies to the US. It is a natural selection that um, what's interesting 
is that a lot of international investors probably do not realize this, that the listing rules in China are much stricter than the listing rules in the US or in Hong Kong. Therefore, some of the Chinese companies that will not be eligible for an IPO within China, has they, they choose to go elsewhere. They, they choose to go to places where they can get more easily listed. And uh, as a result of that, it's uh, possibly more likely you see uh, such scandals and sagas uh, in the offshore listed Chinese companies compared to the, the home listed Chinese companies. But again, Stu, as I said, I, I don't see a significantly larger portion of Chinese companies cooking their books compared to any um, other countries or other markets. It really is uh, more about attention. And back to the entity list, that's more in the political circle. Um, and, but you're right, it, it impacts the corporate world. Um, a typical example is uh, something I guess a lot of our audience might also know, uh, a drone brand called D DJI. Uh, many consumers buy those drones for taking photos and videos from far high, high above. And um, that company was listed into the entity list by the US uh, um, a few times in the past. And for those who do not understand the entity list, that basically is a very long list that uh, US uh, publishes uh, every now and then, uh, which covers all the companies that are deemed as of uh, national threat or national risk to the US. Um, so as I said, DJI was listed on, on the entity list every now and then, and US banned purchases of uh, DJI equipments within US military, which is interesting because uh, a lot of those companies were uh, listed on that list because of their claimed uh, ties or relationship with Chinese military. But the fact is that uh, US military also uh, purchases DJI drones in large uh, quantity. Um, actually, US Air Force publicly uh, announced that they, they, they acquired those drones. And Finland massively used uh, DJI drones uh, in, in, in their military as well. So we, we see um, many interesting clashes, uh, which are not necessarily really because of the roots that they, they, they were attributed to. And of course, there, there are other examples like Huawei and other Chinese companies. Would you say all of them have military ties with the Chinese military? I would say maybe part of them, but not necessarily all of them. And also it depends on how you define ties. For example, I'm sure Intel chips are widely used in many equipments or any PC that is used in um, US military. But would you say that Intel has a close tie with the US military? Probably not. And that same logic applies to many Chinese companies that are on that list. So I think it is partially unfair to have all these companies on the FC list, but that is, again, a result of the intensifying US-China relationship. Fascinating. And uh, again, if we can encourage you, if uh, you're finding some of uh, what Theo is talking about on this podcast interesting, you'd like further information, please do get in touch, ask questions, make statements. Uh, we, we're always willing uh, to debate these kind of topics. Theo, uh, just staying on the topic of 
the sharing of information. I think it would be impossible to uh, have a discussion on the podcast around uh, perceptions of China without addressing uh, COVID, which has impacted everyone across the planet for mm. the better part of two years now, and various claims and accusations of falsifying of, of numbers, hiding numbers. Um, what is the COVID situation in your lived experience in China right now? I think my physical location is uh, a good evidence of uh, the COVID situation in China, in, in a way. Um, I, we relocated the majority of our Hong Kong team to mainland China from a few months ago, uh, partly for business reasons, but partly for health reasons. Um, since our relocation, uh, Hong Kong has deteriorated into a, a hot part of uh, COVID cases. We are on average seeing roughly 10,000 cases a day in Hong Kong, a small city of 7 million population versus less than 100 cases a day in China where you have 1.4 billion people. Um, and I, I can testify to that because I live a normal life in Shanghai, uh, which you cannot in Hong Kong. Hong Kong just announced that all schools will start their summer vacation in a week time, which is uh, still early spring. Um, and so we don't have any disruption of life, work in mainland China so far. Um, COVID is very well contained. I think in the intermediate term, it presents threat uh, to the economic activities not necessarily domestically, but particularly the external relationship. So in the past few years, China benefited from the slowdown in the rest of the world by exporting more and more. But the physical separation uh, between China and the rest of the world, I think will ultimately weigh on economy. But that said, uh, having watched a lot of the Winter Olympics, and uh, as I said at the start of the podcast, it was obviously a very, very strictly controlled environment at every turn. China put in a lot of resources into this. Um, you literally have um, your neighborhood watch, which is uh, not for burglars, but rather for COVID cases. Um, and so I think this is not an, an approach that is replicable elsewhere because it has a lot to do with culture. It has a lot to do with uh, how the society is structured. Um, some people might attribute this to politics. No, I don't think so. It, it really is uh, very unique to this society. Yeah, well, what's fascinating, Theo, always talking to you, especially when you are uh, living your everyday life in mainland China is just having this opportunity to perhaps bust a few myths, but also to hear from you uh, some of the narrative that, that plays out in, in the media that we consume that uh, has elements of truth to it, and, but always good to do the fact checking. And uh, thank you once again for your time on Under the Macroscope, which as a podcast series can be downloaded on Apple, on Spotify, or on the Google podcast platform for Android and all editions of Under the Macroscope are available on Skybound Capital's website at www.skyboundcapital.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next edition of Under the Macroscope.
Thanks as always for your participation in the podcast Under the Macroscope, hosted by Skybound Capital, which has offices here in South Africa, where I am based, London, Hong Kong, Mauritius, and Australia, and providing a variety of wealth advisory and fund management solutions. And one of those fund management solutions is run by Theodore Xu out of the Hong Kong office and where he is based in Shanghai at the moment called the Innovation Fund. And you can find more information about that fund at www.skyboundcapital.com.